Welcome to the Bridge Church Podcast. Our purpose statement at Bridge Church is to reach people where they are and help them grow. We hope today's message inspires you towards growth, and we pray it's life-changing, and we hope to see you soon. Well, welcome to Bridge Church. I'm Rasul Berry, the teaching pastor here. And as we continue to go through this series, through the book of Ephesians, we meet a bit of a pivot from what has been the focus to this point. A lot of the conversation about this search for identity and this searching for me has been appropriately focused on what that journey means to us as individuals. As we grow up, as we mature, our family backgrounds, our, 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 our testimonies, our stories. And we heard that in, as we looked at Ephesians 2.10 last week. And our, uh, Pastor James did an incredible job of looking at how it says that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. The Apostle Paul, though, turns the corner in the next verse in Ephesians, and all of a sudden we start to see this from a different angle and a different perspective. In other words, it looks at the corporate and the social communal aspects of what it means for us to have a new identity in Christ. In other words, it looks at the reality that what God rigged in the gospel, what he set up on the cross and in his resurrection was to also bring people who were far away brought near. So as a result of that, we are no longer strangers. Tell somebody, say, we're no longer strangers. Yeah, we're going to take it old school for a little bit. I got the experience of knowing what it was like to no longer be strangers in a very vivid way last year. My wife and daughter and I, we moved to a part of Crown Heights that's about a 10-minute walk from 770 Eastern Parkway. Now, that address might not mean a whole lot to you, but it is the literal epicenter of Lubavitch Hasidic Judaism. You know the folks with, like, the black and the side locks and things, right? That's what they call them. Yeah, yeah, you know, I got locks, they got side locks. There you go. (laughs) So the interesting thing is we moved there, and just on our block, you know, I'm just, you know, new on a block and I'm meeting my neighbors, on, you know, all over the block. And there's a few uh, Hasidic Jewish families there and I want to meet all of my neighbors. And at first I just thought my general sense of just enthusiasm and waving would, you know, would do the trick. But I started to realize it was really hard to even get eye contact. Like it was just a challenge. And I was started to get discouraged after a few months. And then I said, you know what, I'm going to try one last thing. I, there was a, a holiday called Purim that was coming up. Now, Purim is kind of like the combination of like Jewish, like Halloween meets Christmas all together. It's a, it's a telling of the Esther story where, y'all know in the book of Esther where she is chosen to be the, the queen and, and finds out about the plot to eradicate the Jewish people from the kingdom of Persia. And so she, she exposes the plot and there's this great celebration as a result of the fact that they have been saved. Well, the way that this is celebrated nowadays is people dress up in different costumes, many of the girls in princess costumes like Princess Esther and, or Queen Esther, and, and they celebrate by exchanging gifts. And so I thought, you know what? 
I'm going to do a gesture to these neighbors, right? So I buy these like kosher gift bags, you know, from our, our local, you know, uh, stores and whatnot. And I decide to go knock on some doors and give some gifts, right? Brother with dreadlocks in Crown Heights knocking on a Hasidic Jewish door. This was a great idea. So I knock on the door <laughs> and this older woman, like all dressed in black, you know, with the dress like down to her ankles, she like kind of peers up and, she, and I go, happy Purim. And she kind of like, and she looks at me, she's like, uh, who, who are you? Where do you live? I'm like, I'm just across the street. Neighbor just wanted to say happy for him. She's like, uh, come back when my husband comes, because the men give gifts to men. So then she closes the door. And I was like, dang. I felt kind of rejected, low-key, for real. So I'm like, did she really want me to come back, or was that just an excuse? So in any case, we had city group that week. Uh, so I come back later about, it's like 10 o'clock at night now. But I'm like, but the lights are still on. And I'm like, yo, it's pouring. So, so now I'm in the pitch black dark, knocking on this door, right, <laughs> of this Hasidic Jewish community. So, this, you know, the door opens again, and it's a little boy this time, right? So I go, happy, um, is your, are your parents here? <laughs> and then he goes, Abba, Abba. So then this older uh, man with this white beard comes to the door, and I go, happy Purim. And he looks at the gift, and he looks at me, and he takes the gift looking kind of confused, and then he goes to, you know, extend his hand, like, okay, I'm like, cool. So I, I give him my hand, and he pulls me into the house, like, in one swipe, right? So, like, now I am in the house, like, and there's a whole family there, and he's like, you are the man that are giving the Purim gifts, and he was like, this is great. How did you know it was this holiday? And I told him about what, I traveled to Israel. He was like, why did you go? To? And he was like, this is amazing. And the neighbors are like, look, he's like, come look and see what he did. They took a picture of me, y'all. Like, they were like, with the gift, like, here's the gift, like, take a picture. I'm, they gave me a bigger gift than what I gave them. <laughs> you know what I mean? On the way out. And they were like, where do you live? They're like, okay. So then the next day, I go to my, you know, door, and we kind of make eye contact, and they're like, hey, you the forum, brother. Like, yo, what's up? And all of a sudden, people who I started to wonder if they even just despised me or didn't like me, we broke down a barrier and we're no longer strangers. And in the same way, there's a reality that even though it's spiritually true, it has to actually be lived out for us to experience this. Especially in a time, there's probably not been a time in our nation's history where we're as more divided than we are now. Across racial lines, gender lines, ethnicity, religion, beliefs, orientation, all of these different things are ways in which there just seems to be such division and hostility amongst people. And the question is, in a divided world, is the church the problem? For many people, the answer to that question is unequivocally yes. I was, um, on Friday, I was picking up some dry cleaning, and there's this woman that uh, is there, you know, nice Jamaican woman, and I was, you know, kind of asking her about her background, and I was kind of sharing about what I do as a pastor, and she was like, oh, I don't go to church anymore. Oh. And I'm like, what happened? Why did she was like, man, there's just so many, there was just so many hypocrites. There were people that would put on the mask. They would put on the mask. That's what she was saying. And, you know, I had to say it more than once for emphasis, right? Like, put, and she was like, it was just hypocrites, and I didn't want to have anything to do with it. And the interesting thing is it wasn't that her beliefs changed, but it was her experience with people that caused her to go, I don't want to have anything to do with that. Many of us 
find it difficult to talk to our family or our friends or our coworkers about our faith because they've had such bad interactions and experiences with the church. They've experienced this aspect of polarization and to the extent that some of us in here are still like, I don't know if I want to really keep doing this. You may have experienced things that have been hard. And here's why we can't get around this issue. Because as much as it's been great to look at the dynamic of what God is doing in our lives as individuals, God did not just save me, he saved we. You see, the whole plan from the beginning was to create a people who would come together and worship God together. And there's something about that dynamic. There's something about that story when my story is bound up not only in God's story, but also in our story that changes everything. Now, this is a hard truth for some of us for several reasons. First of all, you might be like, look, I just want to get the worship, the word, peace. I'm out. I got my stuff for the week and I'm ready to go. But the, the, the reality is that's not church. <laughs> that's, that's not the vision that God has. And, and in our Western culture and society that focuses so much on individualism, we can end up having this idea that as long as I get what I want, as long as I get my praise on, as long as I get my word, then I'm good. But the reality is God did not save a me, he saved a we. And there's several reasons why this is difficult to live out. The first is that oftentimes people have experienced woundedness in what we call church And I can understand and empathize with this because church hurt, when you get hurt in that context, it's it's different and it's worse and more intense than it. You you expect when you go home with family to like have conflict, right? Because like we we share the same blood, but we we got different personalities. It's going, you know, you know, on Thanksgiving, it's going to pop off. Somebody's going, uncle this is going to say something, you know, and it's like, it's like, it's family. Like we crazy, right? You even expect at your job or at school that there's going to be different conflicts. But when you come into the house of the Lord and you get a sense of somebody saying something about you, talking about you behind your back, having a sense of conflict, that, 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 that hurts in a different level, in a different way. And here's the other thing. There's this issue of conflict that we oftentimes will have and don't want to deal with. And because we don't want to deal with conflict, it causes us to want to distance ourselves from the people who cause the conflict. But I have a word for you today. You see, church doesn't start until conflict begins. Oh, yeah, you heard me right. I, I, church, doesn't start, see, church doesn't start when I get up here, Pastor James gets up here and says, hey, let's stand up and worship together. Yeah, that's the beginning of a worship service, but that's not the beginning of what it means for us to be community of God together. You see, conflict is not an accident. It's an assignment. Yeah, yeah, conflict is the stuff that allows God to enter into our situations in our lives and begin to change and reveal some things about our character and about our personhood and about our patience and about our love for other people and that, that we can't get in any other way. That can only happen through conflict. So when it happens, it is God's proving ground to cause us to realize what we need to be. So we don't it's easy to come into a space and, you know, we, and if we're not careful, we can be very um, kind of very feel good about the fact that you look around the room. Look around the room. Just look how diverse it is. Just, you know, it's, it's, isn't this amazing what God is doing at Bridge Church? And you go, wow, this is cool. 
But the reality is proximity does not equal intimacy. Yeah, we, we can be sitting next to somebody and go, wow, they look different from me. Or look, you know, like they're from a different context, a different country. I mean, even today in baptism, right? I mean, we had Josh, who's folks from, you know, England years back, but from North Carolina, baptizing, you know, Danica, you know, as Caribbean roots. And, you know, then earlier this, you know, today, we, I mean, we, at the four o'clock, we had all these people from all these different backgrounds getting baptized. And you go like, wow, that's amazing. But... Being sitting next to someone doesn't make us any more unified than people going into a movie theater to watch something for two and a half hours and then they leave and never see each other again. Oh, it was mad diverse in the theater. But what did it actually mean? And so, unless we make the choice to really go deeper and to deal with the inevitable conflict that will emerge when people from different cultures get together. We were talking about this during worship because, you see, Josh is, you know, our executive pastor. He is, like, just wired to be very meticulous and time-oriented. Our worship leader, Mark, is not so time-oriented. and <laughs> He's like, yo, the spirit is moving. Let's roll, right? And so... The beautiful thing is we have to learn how to work those things together in real time in a worship service, right? And there's going to be aspects where it's like, okay, well, how's that going to actually play itself out? And there's more and more types of those type of personalities and cultural differences that exist when people get together. But how do we deal with that is the question. And so as we go to Ephesians 2.11, you see this turning point where Paul begins to deal with this. He says, so then, remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcised by those called the circumcised, which is done in the flesh by human hands. Paul begins to turn the corner and says, hey, okay, he's talking to this church in Ephesus, which is like in Turkey, and they're, you know, mostly a Gentile church. So Gentiles were non-Jewish people, right? Like they, they're not from the same promises of God and, the, the, you know, keeping culture and all of that th- stuff. And so what the whole process of circumcision, circumcision was the sign that God gave Abraham. Well, you know what? Let me, let me step back a little further. Got to start the story a little sooner. Because in Genesis chapter 1, we see the creation story where God creates Adam and Eve. He creates humanity, tells them to go be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth with my glory and subdue it and to be my representatives all over the world. That was the assignment. Genesis chapter 3, we see the fall of humanity happen when they rebel against God's commands. Cover themselves up with fig leaves in their shame. And all of a sudden, animosity happens. Adam is blaming Eve. They're making excuses for each other. We see their child, their children, Cain kills Abel, and the divisions happen in the world in this moment. By the time we get to Genesis chapter 12, God reveals himself to Abraham. And he says, hey, Abraham, even though you, you, you're from Chaldea, you're from, you know, a pagan people, you, you don't, you, but I'm going to choose to work my plan through you. And he looks, tells Abraham, he says, look in the sky. You see all those stars out there? count them. I can't count them. (laughs) There's too many. He said, that's how many of your descendants there's going to be. And I'm going to bless you so that you can bless the entire world. And everywhere from that point, from Genesis chapter 12 to the rest of 
the Old Testament, there's the story of the outworking of how God was going to use a certain group of people that came to be known as Israel, that came to be known as the Jewish people in order to bless the world through a Messiah who would come and appear. But up until that point, he said, okay, so, but you're Gentiles in the flesh. The sign that he gave Abraham to, with Isaac was circumcision as a sign that would have to be done to every male born, uh, every old born child, every male child. So, but what began to happen is that it got twisted at some point and all of a sudden the idea of them being a blessing to the nation kind of became a self-righteous thing. And now they start to use the term uncircumcised in a very negative way to those who were Gentiles. But it also went both ways because this is in a Greco-Roman world. And actually the, the Romans and the Greeks looked at the Jews like, y'all, what are y'all doing over there? First of all, isn't it obvious that there's multiple gods? Like we got Zeus and we got Diana and we got, and you're saying that there's one God and y'all don't even draw a picture of him? Like I can't even do that to make us see what he looks like? That's silly. That's stupid. You follow all these rules? Y'all don't eat pork chops? Y'all don't eat shrimp? Like what's good with y'all? This is weird. Like they, they, they were totally dissing them too. So the uncircumcised were dissing the circumcised and the circumcised were dissing the uncircumcised. And then they come into the church and they're side-eyeing each other. Now, look at what happens next, though. So then Paul explains, at that time, you were without Christ, excluded from the citizenship of Israel and foreigners to the covenants of promise, without hope and without God in the world. He's picking up from where he started in Ephesians 2, 1, where he gives their spiritual history and their testimony. And he says, look, at this time, while the plan of salvation is unfolding, you didn't know anything about a Messiah that was coming. You weren't, you didn't have the scriptures when you're looking at Isaiah and you're looking at Jeremiah like, oh, I wonder when the Messiah is going. You didn't know anything about this. You didn't know anything about the promises. You didn't know anything about the covenants. You were excluded from those things. Remember this to see what it was that God did for you. But look at what he says. He said, but in order for you to appreciate Jesus, you have to understand you are without hope and without God in the world. And we can forget this because fast forward 2,000 years later, the church is majority Gentile, but it didn't start that way. And so now what we take for granted is just, of course, was a foreign concept to them. And he says, look, this is where you were. The situation was pretty desperate. You were disconnected. You were far away from God. And then something happens in verse 13. It's called a conditional conjunction. You see the, the turning point happen, right? In verse 13, you know, it, it all changes, right? That, that's coming. But, but, but you have to see how entrenched and how uh, just, it, just thoroughly saturated these distinctions in this division was. Even in the temple, the very place where it was the center of Jewish worship, there was a court of the Gentiles. And at this court of the Gentiles, this is the wide space that you see there. That was the place where it was like, okay, if you want to know something about God, if you want to hang out, you want to, you know, buy some sheep, some lamb, you can hang out there. But there was a sign that King Herod put on the door. This wasn't in the scriptures. He didn't, Herod was not like, yo, I'm trying to, I'm not a righteous person, right? Like he just was trying to win curry favor among his people. And this is what the sign said on the door. Warning on the wall. No foreigner is to go beyond the plaza of the temple zone. Whoever is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his death which will follow. How's that for a welcome sign? Come past this point, you got, you don't, you'd only want to blame for your death. 
And this was the point of reference that people have. And we know that this was, I mean, if you look in Acts 21, if you want to see how this works, Paul was actually accused in Acts 21 of bringing an Ephesian into the temple. And as a result of that, it started a riot. He, now, he didn't do it, but he was just accused of it. And they dragged him out and was ready to stone the dude to death. And it was an Ephesian, and so I think this is why he's reminding them of the situation, because they remember um, when this happened, because this was happening at the very beginning of their church. So this is how di- divisive and significant it was. Now, we look at that and we go, that's pretty bad, but we can just look at the newspaper and see things are just as bad today. Across racial lines, across political lines, across all of these lines, there's just this aspect of this pointed division. But look at what... Paul says here, here comes the conditional conjunction. You ready? But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. He said, everything that I just described, that dark situation, that aspect of you being completely far away from the promises of God, the knowledge of God, who he was, the tension and the conflict that existed between the Jew and the Gentile. He says, now this is not your new reality, Ephesian church. Your new reality is you who were far away from each other, even despising each other, even talking badly about each other, have been brought near. How? By the blood of Christ. Wow. Okay. What does that mean? That seems kind of gory. You see... The amazing thing that happens, and sometimes we take this for granted and we don't fully appreciate it, is that in Jesus' life and death and resurrection, that didn't just happen to accomplish salvation, but it had all of these implications for how we live on this earth. Now, the first part we have to understand is that, remember we talked about the fig leaves that Adam and Eve covered up, right? That weren't, insuff- weren't sufficient. So what, immediately what God does when he approaches them is he, he says, look, here, I'm going to clothe you with animal skins. You trying to cover up your own sin, you trying to be good enough to please me isn't working. So he then graciously gives them covering over their sin with blood of of an innocent. And this is the first picture that we get. And so then the temple was built, the very temple that we just saw the image of. And at that temple, year to year, innocent lambs were slain on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, which was supposed to proclaim the aspect that the, the, the priest, the high priest, would put his hand on the head of the lamb and it would transmute, it would impute the sins of the people ceremoniously from them to the lamb and they would slay the lamb. And the blood would go down into the bowl, and that was to symbolize the aspect that that sin, their sin as a people, had been transmitted to that lamb. And as a result of that, they had now been forgiven and atoned. But then what we've realized in the New Testament is that was just a preview. That was just a foretaste. That was just a, a, a picture of what was to be the substance, which was that Jesus comes. And so then John the Baptist says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He is the Lamb that in... Hebrews says he's the high priest that intercedes one for all time. And through the blood of Christ, we now have forgiveness. We now have redemption with God. Those who were far away were brought near by Jesus. In Christ, we are no longer strangers with God. And that baptism that we just saw today and celebrated is a picture of the fact that God says, hey, look, 
I'm going to allow you to vicariously benefit from Jesus's death and his resurrection. So now you are raised to new life. And that would be shout worthy and we could end the church right there. That's good enough news. But then he says like a great telemarketer, but wait, there's more. And then in verse 14, it goes on. For he is our peace who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility in his flesh. Sidebar here. Theological truth always has an ethical implication. Let me put that differently. What we believe should always affect how we live. There's no such thing as just a belief that's just out there that's not supposed to change what is true about us. And so look at what he's saying. He's like, so he is our peace, right? That peace with God, that, that, that covering of sin that happens. But there has ethical implications. It has horizontal implications. Who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. The hostility that said, if you come past this point, you're going to die. You're not wanted here. He says he destroys that in his flesh and creates something completely brand new. Oh, I wish I had time to get into how significant it is that Paul is the one talking about this. If you look in Philippians chapter 3, you see his own testimony. Prior to him realizing this, he was a persecutor of the church for the very reason that they were drawing in Gentiles. And then he comes to see Jesus and is like, yo, I had it all wrong. This was God's plan from the beginning. So here's the point. Jesus reaches those who were previously out and brings them in to his family. Yeah. See, we got work to do before we get to heaven. Like, we have work to continue to build that family that God has for us. Those who are on the outside, who are on the margins, who are the forgotten, who are the alienated, who have beef with each other, are made to be family in Jesus. But here is the problem. Even though Jesus accomplished destroying, tearing down that dividing wall of hostility, the reality is we build that wall back up in the church. We still build walls that divide. We put them back. And we do this through various different ways. See, because the issue is that when we come through those doors, oftentimes we bring the assumptions and the baggage of just everything that we experience throughout that week in here too. And so whether it's economic and class lines or whatever, we can have this sort of beef. All right, let me make this plain for us. Let's talk about, let's, let's get down into the weeds and talk about bridge, right? heard somebody gasp. It's all right. (laughs) So Bridge, this is who we are, right? We're average age is about 26 years old. You know, have a lot of upwardly mobile fashionistas in the building. We are mostly 80% single. Shout out to the singles. Yeah. 20% married. Shout out to the married. Yay. All the Marys were at the four o'clock. They're like, yo, I'm out. I ain't staying out late with these cats. And here's the thing, right? That's kind of just like who we are. And if we're not careful, 
there are ways in which when people come through the door, we can become to make assumptions and judgments and distinctions and divisions even in the church. This was a problem in the very beginning of church. One of the first books in the New Testament is the book of James. And James, look at what James describes from this early church from the beginning. It says, my brothers and sisters, do not show favoritism as you hold on to the faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. For if someone comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes and a poor person dressed in filthy clothes also comes in, if you look with favor on the one wearing the fine clothes and say, sit here in a good place, you know, next to me. And yet to the poor person, you, stand, you say, stand over there or sit on the floor by my footstool. Haven't you made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? He said, look, people come in and, and, and we start to act different and we filter out who we get close to, who we draw near to versus who we don't draw near to on appearances. And he says, this is not what's supposed to be. He's like, look, these, these, we become judges with evil thoughts. And the reality is, as pastors, we talk all the time to people and ask about their first experiences at the church, and we hear this kind of dynamic happen from time to time, more frequently than we like. There was one young guy. I got a chance to meet him when I first moved to Brooklyn. Uh, turns out we both were serving in ministry together uh, with crew, and uh, he was actually serving at Mecca Evers University. That's a historically black college in Brooklyn, for those that don't know. And he's doing this work, and, and so by the time he already got here, he was, you know, someone that was in ministry full-time serving. Now, I remember visiting him at Mega Evers, right, and I would come in, and everybody knew this dude. It was like, yo, what's up, Chris? How you doing? Yo, what's going on? Like the security people, the, the students, the staff. And that might not seem too impressive until you realize that Chris is Chinese-American. <laughs> There's Chris. And he's also a model in his spare time, in case you didn't know. So I'm talking to Chris, right? So he meets me at this conference, and he's like, yo, I'm going to go check out your church. And so I start, you know, talking to him. I was like, so, like, how, how was it? He was like, it's cool. But, you know, when I first came in the door, someone came and said, um, are you lost? Are you lost? Like, cause, and you see the implication. You, you, you're not, you, you don't belong here. You, you must be looking for someplace else. And these are the ways, the small ways in which we can begin to just divide without even realizing it. But here's the reality. I want everyone to hear this. If you're, whether this is your first time here, whether you've been here for a while and you're still trying to find your way. It's intentional for you to be here. You are intended to be here. You're wanted to be here. There's a sense that we need to break down barriers, sometimes more than others, but regardless of your age, regardless of your gender, regardless of where you're coming from, socioeconomic background, whatever, our vision for a church is for you to be here. Pun intended. Chris Pun. Some of y'all get that. That's cool. So here's this work that we have to do. We have to each ask ourselves the question, who is out that you need to invite in? And it really doesn't matter if you've been here for three months or three years. That's a question that we all need to struggle with and ask. Because here are the, here's the practical implication of what Jesus accomplished on the cross. In Christ, we are no longer strangers with each other. 
Turn to your neighbor, say, we're no longer strangers. Turn to your other neighbor, say, we are no longer strangers. <laughs> there you go. There you go. So here's the thing, though. In order for that to become actual reality, we must destroy the dividing wall of relational passivity. Yeah. I'll amen myself. Amen. Let me break that down. Let me break that down. Because you see, part of the problem, what happens when conflict emerges, right? Someone says something, offends you in some type of way. What we often do is we go, um, we go to somebody that we are close to and go, yo, guess what so-and-so did? Can you believe they did that? Man, I ain't messing with them no more. They're canceled. <laughs> and the reality is, <laughs> if we're supposed to be a body, then that's the last person you should be talking to. Anybody else, the, the person you should deal with is the person who hurt you and offended you. I'm not making this up. Jesus said, if you're at the altar and you've realized, you remember that your brother's offended, against, offended you, go to him. Look at Matthew 18. He says, look, if someone, he says, look, if you, if you did the offending and you're like, yo, I think that person took what I said in a way that hurt them. I need to go and check with them. Yo, we, are we good? Because you might have been offended by what I said. The responsibility is also on the person who was offended because sometimes people don't know that they offended you. And you have to go to them as well. And we have to walk across the room sometimes and be willing to have the hard conversations in order to break down conflict. We have to be the bridge. So this is what Paul goes on to say in 16. He goes on to explain, he, Jesus, did this so that he might, look at this, reconcile both to God in one body through the cross by which he put the hostility to death. He came and proclaimed the good news of peace to you who were far away and peace for those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. There's so much here. I just want to highlight a couple different chunks. First of all, look at the fact that Paul is saying that Jesus' death didn't just accomplish forgiveness with God, but he also did this part of the purpose was to bring reconciliation to those who were far away from each other. That's the application of the gospel here and now. That he says, look, I have a, in heaven, there aren't these divisions. In heaven, I see, Paul, John sees every tribe, tongue, and nation worshiping for before God. And we are to pray, Lord, let your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. That's the work that we're supposed to work toward. And the way that we do that is by leaning into what Jesus has already done for us. The other thing that this shows us is that look at the solution to the problem of division was a systematic solution. Jesus, it wasn't just all individuals. Jesus systemically, once for all, in dying on the cross, ended the penalty and the judgment of sin. That means we have to look at systemic issues in our community that draw people away, not just individual ones. The, the school to prison pipeline, we got to look at that, gentrification, all the things that cause people to be far away and we need to bring those near and realize that Christ comes to speak to that. The other point is crazy. Look at the last sentence, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Yo, you didn't catch this. See, 
part of what Paul is arguing for is we have to be unified because if we want to be like God, then we have to be one even though we're different because God is one and different at the same time. Oh, yeah, yeah. See, he's appealing to a Trinitarian argument to make the case for community. He's saying, look, we had, through him, through Jesus, we both have access in one spirit, Holy Spirit, to the Father. He's saying because God is in perfect harmony and community with himself, to be like God is for us to be in community with each other. We can't have it any other way. So we can't just decide to cancel people and cancel the church when somebody hurts our feelings. We got to lean into it and be like God in that way. And so then the question becomes, what would Jesus do? What would Jesus do? Y'all remember that, the bracelets, what would Jesus do, WWJD? The funny thing is people don't often understand the history of where that came from. Like to hear it? Here it go. It came from a book called In His Steps by an author named Charles Sheldon who lived about 100 years ago. He was a pastor uh, that was born and raised in Boston, and he decided to move to Topeka, Kansas, in order to be about living out the gospel. And he lived out asking this question and doing his sermon series, what would Jesus do in order to, to, if he was living in Topeka, Kansas in 1900? One of the things he saw was that there was a great racial disparity that existed in the city. So he starts what would become the first school west of the Mississippi that black people could go to. He starts the school, one of his first students is named Elisha Scott. Elisha shows incredible potential and wisdom and insight. And so he begins to mentor Elisha. But Elisha hits a snag because even though he has all this great insight, he can't afford college. His parents are just sharecroppers. They can't afford something like that. So then Charles Sheldon, who's a white dude from Boston, decides to underwrite Elisha Scott's education. Elisha Scott becomes, listen to this, the first black lawyer in Kansas. He has a son. He's so grateful and the connection with, uh, with Charles Sheldon is so deep that he names his son Charles Sheldon Scott. That would be dope if that was the end of the story, but wait, there's more. Charles Sheldon Scott ends up becoming a lawyer just like his daddy. And in fact, is on the case, one of the lawyers who tries Brown versus Board of Education in Topeka, Kansas. Because Charles Sheldon decided to live out the incarnational aspects of the gospel where he was, we now have desegregation in our country. What would Jesus do? See, the reboot is better than the original. <laughs> Y'all know about the reboots, right? Because sometimes we don't get it right when we try to take things in our own version, in our own strength and live it out. We get to see this. I'm a Marvel fan, right? And I remember the dark ages of Spider-Man, like, like about 10, 15 years ago when Tobey Maguire was like Spider-Man, right? Y'all remember this? And then like by the third one, they had him with this like Aaliyah swoop and he's dancing in the streets. And it's like, yo, what is going on? Like, what's happening? But see, the part of the issue was Sony had bought the rights to Spider-Man from Marvel. But see, then Marvel had that come up. And so they say, hey, you know what, um, let, me, let me take that story and let us work it inside of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. So then they pick up Tom Holland, Iron Man gives him the suit, there's all this synergy and inter interconnectedness with this whole other story that's happening, and it's like dope, and now all of a sudden he's on the Avengers fighting Thanos. And we're like, yo, this is crazy. And what happens is the reboot is better than the original. See, what happens with us is we try to take the story like Sony and we jack it up. 
in the gospel, Jesus, like the MCU is like, no, let me take that story. Let me take it from you. Come on, let me get that out. Let me remix it and put it into a group of Avengers. And now the end game is the glory of God through the unity of each other. Come on now. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. All right. Here's the last passage. <laughs> he says, so then you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household built on the foundation of the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. He says, you're no longer foreigners and strangers. You're no longer far away and separate. You're no longer distant, but he would actually made you citizens. That would be dope, right? Like if we were just part of the same nation. But he takes it a step further and says, we are members of the same household. So we are to be the ones who build the bridge with each other. And it takes work to have that happen. I was talking recently to uh, Emily here, who's been here at the church for several years. And this is what she said. I asked her about how she went through her journey. And she says, I got connected at the bridge because we were willing to work through the awkward. We were willing to work through the awkward. Yeah, this, this, you know, this white girl from South Carolina, Virginia, went by way of South Carolina, came up here and, and interacted. And, and this culture changed. She's in a minority all of a sudden in this context that that was new for her and is being stretched. And it was this journey, but people connected with her. She, and they committed to have the hard conversations in order for there to be a sense of unification with each other. They were willing to work through the awkward. So I have a question. Are you willing to work through the awkward? Are you willing to work through the awkward with each other? That's what it takes for us, for those who are far away, to be brought near. She talked about how Sydney reached out to her and how they began to connect with each other. And they started to just, just do life together. And as a result of that, there started to be a unity and an intimacy that was deeper. And they are no longer strangers. Christ calls us to invite others to no longer be strangers. And in order to do that, we have to recognize that we have to traverse and confront all of the different barriers because the reality is marginalization is not symmetrical. It's not equal. Like they, there's, there's disproportionate ways in which people are made to feel other and outside and need to be brought in and brought near, especially through major categories like race and like gender and things like this. And, we, and when we do this, when we take the initiative to push through these things, we see that in a divided world, the church is not the problem. It is the solution. <laughs> you see, because we were built for this. Like literally, like Jesus is saying, he uses the picture of a household, of a building, and says, hey, you guys are the stones. Jesus, I am the cornerstone. And we build up together a household of unity by which the world will see in John 17. They will see the love that you have for one another and glorify the Father who is in heaven. That's the game plan. So what he says is, run the play. I gave you all a play. Love each other. Run the play. It's not hard. It's not complicated. It's hard sometimes, but just run the play. Don't run away from conflict when it emerges. Run toward it and realize that all the identities that I come to, they have to succumb to the primary identity I have as a child of God in the same household as you. You can remember when you tried to have the silent treatment with your brother and your sister in the house and your parents are like, nah, kill that. <laughs> come together. We got to figure this out. So the question for each other is what is your next step? What is the next step that you personally have to take? 
I mean, yeah, we, y'all know me. We, we like to talk about the ways that this has implications toward macro issues that we face in the world. But here's the, the reality is we can't talk about serving our city if we're not growing as a family. We bring people, you, know, you ever have somebody come into your, uh, like a family like dinner and they like just argument and tension everywhere. It's like, you know what, I'm good. I think I'll just get McDonald's. Like, I'm... We have to get this right and be willing to be the very picture of unity that Christ calls us to be. And that means for some of us taking the step to go across the room, taking the step to reach out and invite someone into community and into family. And when we do that, as we do that, we'll see clearer to confront the major issues that are out there that the gospel also causes us to confront. The major injustices that exist in the world that the gospel also speaks to. And that's when we no longer be strangers, but family. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that your story is bigger and better than anything that we could have imagined. We thank you that you've called us to tear down the dividing walls of hostility. Would you speak to us and reveal and show us how to do that? Would you give us the courage to have the hard conversations that we need to have this week with people in this room, at this church? Would you allow us to be the body of Christ that you've called us to be? In Christ's name, amen. Well, we're going to just continue and transition into our response time right now. This is a time when we reflect and actually are able to respond to the message in two major ways. The first is we have, we serve communion pretty much every week. And we do that because think about the word communion, it's common union. The whole picture of it is that Jesus is saying, you are all one as a result of what I've accomplished on the cross. And so the action is a constant reminder of the reality that we are called to be no longer strangers with God and with each other. So we're gonna do that today. As, and as you do, I wanna just be an expert, uh, uh, just by faith even, Lord, help us to be the church that tears down dividing walls of hostility and build up community and fellowship. But there's another part to that. Because we learn in 1 Corinthians that it says, hey, let a person examine themselves to see if everything is right for them before they even take communion. There might be conversations that you need to have. There might be animosity that needs to be torn down. And we just want to encourage you to just pray and reflect and ask God to give you the focus to actually take care of that first. So it might be today not the time for you to take communion. You might realize that there's some business that you need to attend to. The other option is to go back in the back for prayer. As you heard this message and the spirit might be just impressing and there's just somebody searing in your mind right now, you know that there's a wall of hostility and you just need help to have those hard conversations. You need help to just even change your heart to be in a place where you wanna have a conversation or the wisdom to know how to do it. There's gonna be opportunity, people, prayer, folks in the back to pray with you on that. And so how this works is we just go up these middle aisles and the elements will be up here at the front. You take the cup, it has the wafer there. 
And just in your own time, as you pray, you can just take up communion. Uh, but if you want to go to the back first and pray and just talk with someone, you can do that as well. So as the elements come forward, just invite us all to stand as we receive this moment. And again, this is not a ritual. This is not just something that we just do without thinking. But the whole point of this is that we can actually take the tangible steps to respond to the message of the gospel of reconciliation, to bring those who are far away near. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you that you, through your blood, have brought those who are far away near. We pray that you would use these elements of communion, that you would use this moment of response and prayer to help prepare our hearts to tear down walls of division, to tear down walls of alienation and animosity of resentment and bitterness, and that we would build up love with each other, that we would be the bridge that you've called us to be. Lord, help us to live out what you've called us to be together, no longer strangers. In Jesus' name, amen. Please come in your own time forward to receive the elements through the middle aisles, go back around the back aisles, and then come back for prayer. We hope today's message was encouraging for you. We'd also love to hear how God used this message to speak to you. We hear from people all across the country about what God is doing through our podcast, and we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at info at bridgechurchnyc.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle for both of those social media outlets is at bridgechurchnyc. Our website is bridgechurchnyc.com. If you're in the New York City area, we have services at 4 p.m. and 6 p.m. on Sundays at 98 Fifth Avenue in Brooklyn, New York, right next to the Barclay Center. We are praying for you, and we hope to see you soon.